Father, we thank you for uh, just your grace to us. Um, we thank you for all the new people who have been able to join us. We thank you for the opportunity to still have fellowship um, through a, a medium like this. And uh, it's a privilege, Lord, and it's still a grace that we get to um, gather together with our brothers and sisters and to hear from you um, speaking to us through your word. Thank you for uh, your spirit who dwells in our hearts, who is making us into the image of Christ and who is producing all of these qualities, um, the fruit of the spirit as we've been studying for the past few weeks. Um, and I pray as we finish this up, as we look at the topic of self-control tonight, uh, that you would just deepen our understanding, uh, grow our desire to cultivate this fruit in our life. And I pray that, uh, yeah, that others in our lives would be blessed because of it. And most of all, that you'd be honored. And so we ask that you be pleased with our time tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, why don't you guys open your Bibles to Galatians 5, 22 to 23. Um, and we'll, we'll read uh, just the list, those verses that the fruit of the Spirit comes from one more time. So this is Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And this familiar couple verses for us. But it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So for tonight, we're at the very last item in this list of the fruit of the spirit, which is self-control. Um, and I remember back to the, the very first message we had and one of the discussion questions was, which one of the qualities do you want to learn about the most? Or which one do you wanna grow in the most? And uh, at least for my small group, like I think most people actually pointed to self-control and they were curious and, and interested in that last one. And I, I think it is in many ways, may, maybe the strangest one in the list, right? Uh, kind of like what Winston said last time about gentleness. I think we, we generally don't really describe other people using the word self-controlled. Um, but as we go into this, I think even though it is the last one that we're looking at, it's definitely not the least, okay? In fact, in the Greco-Roman culture, which is the culture in which this was originally written, self-control and what they kind of defined as mastery of self was very highly esteemed. Uh, for example, you might've heard of the Stoics before, right? The Stoics believed that if a person could exercise extreme self-control, like a, a kind of control over their emotions, their responses, everything, then this person could be free, they could be unmoved, unaffected by anything that happened to them. Um, there's a philosopher named Philo, and he was describing some of these like Jewish monks back in the day who were super devoted, super disciplined. And this is what he said. He said, having first laid down self-control as a foundation for the soul, they build the other virtues on it. Okay, having first laid down self-control as a foundation for the soul, they build the other virtues on it. And I think that's a, a pretty helpful picture showing us what self-control is. I think especially in relation to all of these other fruits that we've already talking, talked about. Okay, self-control is a foundation for our souls. That in many ways we build on top of it, everything else that we've already talked about depends on whether we are able to exercise self-control. You think about it, you can't be kind, um, you can't be gentle without exercising some control over your words or over your actions. 
right? You can't demonstrate peace or patience without exercising some control over the way that you respond to certain things. Uh, you think about a husband, right? A husband cannot be loving. Uh, he cannot be faithful to his spouse without self-control. And so if, if love, right, is, is the first in this list because it binds everything together, then I think that we can say that self-control is last because without it, any sort of growth, any sort of consistency with all of these other ones isn't really possible. Okay, so I, I want us to understand the importance of what we're talking about tonight. Well, let's define what we mean by this. Okay, what is the fruit of self-control? Um, here's a, maybe a few different definitions. I think one, it's, it's the strength to do the right thing even when you don't feel like it. It's the strength to do the right thing even when you don't feel like it. Uh, Tim Keller defines it in this way. He says, it is the ability to pursue the important over the urgent rather than to be always impulsive or uncontrolled. Uh, Self-control is knowing and doing what is most important to God and arranging your life around those things. And if you look back in Galatians 5, you jump up to verses 19 to 21. This is uh, just a few verses before the fruit of the Spirit. And you think about what is the extreme opposite of self-control, right? You think of a person who is controlled by their passions, by their circumstances, uh, the very other end of it. And I think this is the picture of what you get. Right, Galatians 5.19, it says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, uh, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like that. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, similar idea in Titus 1, 7 and 8. Okay, in that passage, Paul is talking about the qualifications for elders in the church. And he says, in contrast, um, it, the opposite of it is being arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, right? That's, that's the negative side of it. And then he says the opposite is uh, rather an elder, a qualified elder must be a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Um, Proverbs twenty-five twenty-eight. it says that a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. City broken into and left without walls. So if you don't have self-control is a picture, then it's dangerous, right? It leaves you vulnerable to threats from the outside. There's no resistance. There's no defense when temptation comes your way. And like we've said for the rest of the fruits of the spirit, <clears throat> self-control is not just a personality trait. Okay. It's not just a, a natural disposition. Uh, we need to realize that it's not optional if you are a Christian. In Titus chapter 2, Paul is uh, exhorting Titus, and uh, he tells Titus, <clears throat> teach what accords with sound doctrine. Okay, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And so what follows is, okay, what does sound doctrine look like played out in everyday life? Well, he goes through these groups of people. He says older men, older women, young men, young women, and he, he has all these instructions. And if you read through it, all of them mention self-control. Okay, Titus 2, verse 2, 5, verse 6, verse 12. And so uh, this is relevant for everyone. Okay, no matter what stage of life you're in, this is one way that we live that accords with what we believe. And then, of course, in that same passage, Titus 2, uh, in verses 11 to 14, you have this like beautiful description of the gospel. Um, it says, the grace of God has appeared, 
bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And this is what the grace of God does. It, it trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Okay, the grace of God trains us to live a life of self-control. And so hopefully you get the point. Okay, if I think we can say that if you wanted to summarize uh, what is mature Christian conduct, you look through the Bible, how does it describe that? I think the Bible shows us that one word that you can use is self-controlled. Okay, a self-controlled life is evidence of the gospel's transforming work in you. And so let me ask you, do we think about it that way? I think, unfortunately, um, self-control gets a bit of a bad rap. I think for us, we, or we can have kind of a distorted view of self-control that keeps us from diligently pursuing it in our lives. Uh, for example, maybe for some of you, self-control feels impossible, right? And uh, you've tried many, many times and you failed. And so uh, you've just given up altogether. Or maybe self-control seems legalistic. Maybe for you, it seems like a bunch of rules or a bunch of guidelines. Uh, maybe it seems like, you know, you're taking yourself or you're taking things way too seriously. Um, I think maybe some of us, we are quick to counterbalance statements in the scripture about self-control. Uh, for example, in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, where Paul says, I discipline my body and keep it under control, right? You have these like really intense statements and we're quick to like counterbalance that with, you know, God's grace and, uh, you know, the freedom that we have in Christ. And so maybe for you, self-control seems legalistic. If you were to ask our culture today, um, I think people would say that self-control is repressive, that self-control is not just difficult, but it's actually not a good thing, right? Uh, our culture says that everyone should be free to express themselves. Why would you want to control or restrain yourself? Everyone should be free to pursue what you want. And anything that gets in the way of that is wrong. And so you have all of these different uh, kind of erroneous views of self-control. Just one more thought before we jump into our outline. When we think about how to apply this message, okay, where self-control is needed in our lives, uh, we have to think about both sins of commission and sins of omission. Okay, both sins of commission and sins of omission. Sins of commission uh, is speaking to when we actually do the wrong thing. Um, but sins of omission means that we fail to do the right thing, right? We fail to do what we should do. Um, and I think when we think about, like, where do we apply self-control, we have to think about both of those things. For example, an obvious area of application, right, for self-control is uh, lust and sexual sin, right? Lack of self-control it leads, us, it leads us to give into temptation. It leads us into sexual sin um, and that sin of commission. Okay, we're doing something wrong. But realize that self-control also has to do with things like spiritual laziness. It has to do with apathy. Um, it has to do with whether or not you do your quiet times, how you approach your schoolwork as a student, how you spend your free time. In fact, I think we can maybe even say that every single moment from when you wake up, right? When your alarm goes off in the morning to when you sleep at night, every single moment of your day presents you with choices or opportunities to exercise this fruit in your life. And when you think about it, often it's not that we don't know 
the right thing to do, right? It's not that we don't know like what is, what's the better thing for me, right? Like we know we should exercise, we should, uh, or I should read my Bible, I should pay attention in class instead of going on my phone. I should serve my roommate instead of veg out on the computer. Uh, I should like do all of these things and we don't get to doing it because, and I think that's, that's a matter of self-control, right? It's not that we don't know what we should be doing. And so self-control oftentimes is what fills that gap between what we know is right or what we know is true and what our lives look like in actuality. And so as you consider what this looks like in your life, uh, I, I think scripture is going to challenge us to think bigger than we might first think. Um, and I was reading through this, my, my message afterwards, and I, I realized I, I focus a lot on just kind of like the everyday, like little things, but, and that's important, uh, but I want you to think broadly, okay? Like wh- where does this apply in your life, like in your relationships and uh, every area of your life? Okay, so I have four ideas, four thoughts here. I don't think this is everything that the Bible has to say about self-control, um, but I want to look at four ideas that help fill out our understanding of what it is, and then we'll talk about a few practical applications at the end. All right, so point number one is this, not self, but the spirit. Not self, but the spirit. <clears throat> For this point, we are really talking about who or what empowers or produces the fruit of self-control in our lives. Okay, we're really talking about the source. We're talking about where does the strength for self-control come from? And I think when it comes to self-control in particular, um, at least functionally, I feel like we can really treat it as if it's uh, a mostly human endeavor. Right? After all, you think, like, what is it called? It's called self-control, right? You think of all uh, the secular books that are on steps that you can take, you know, to increase your productivity, um, to cultivate good habits. Um, or maybe you think about like the ways that you've lacked self-control and you think about uh, failed resolutions, right? failed New Year's resolutions. And I think like for the most part, we don't blame anyone else for it, right? We like, we take personal responsibility for it. We know that um, that's on us. But while it's true that self-control is something that we must actively cultivate, that's true in scripture. And sometimes that's through extreme and, and some radical measures realize it's also a fruit of the spirit, right? Self-control, self-control is a fruit of the spirit. And by definition, that means that that is something that is supernaturally produced in us by his work in our life. So I think where we need to start is first by realizing that the problem is a lot worse than we think it is. Okay, what I mean by that is when we look in scripture and how it describes people, how it describes human nature, Uh, Everyone is in either of these categories. You are either dead to sin or you are alive in Christ. You're one or the other. Uh, If the way that Romans 6 puts it actually is that we are either slaves to sin or we are either slaves of righteousness. And when you think about the word self-control, it implies, right, there's a part of us that needs to be controlled. You know, there's a part of us that we need to restrain, right? We can't just always do whatever it wants. And, And theologically, this is what the Bible calls the flesh. Okay, the flesh. This is the part of us that is opposed to God. The flesh is our wrong desires and impulses that lead us into sin. And realize that apart from Christ, okay, apart from the Holy Spirit changing our hearts, the flesh is what characterized us. The flesh is what dominated and ruled us. We were enslaved to our passions. But as believers, uh, there's been a change. 
right? We can bear the genuine fruit of self-control because we are now controlled by someone else. Second uh, Corinthians 5, 14 to 15 talks about this. It says that the love of Christ controls us. That is our new ruler. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake had died and was raised. So even though we still struggle against the flesh as believers, it is the spirit who owns us. It's the spirit who rules us. And that means that he is the source, right? He is the power. He's the strength for cultivating the fruit of self-control. And so like theologically, this needs to be our starting point. We have the ability by the spirit to say no to sin. We have the ability to live self-controlled lives. In fact, that is the only way that we have any hope for growing in self-control at all. And this matters not just in terms of whether we're saved or not, um, but this matters for how we try to to cultivate self-control in the Christian life. I think some of the the practical strategies that we often turn to um, is like, you know, you try to be super disciplined or you like radically simplify or you minimize the things in your life. Maybe you disconnect from certain things like um, social media or maybe even like certain relationships. You try to like get rid of all of this stuff in your life. And I think what happens is we often see self-control as like step one towards relationship with God. And we think, think, I need to get this in order. My quiet times, reading my Bible, prayer, fighting sin. Let me get all of this in order. And that's the first step towards this relationship with God. But really, self-control is cultivated in relationship with him. Just like a tree needs to be nourished by soil to produce fruit, we bear spiritual fruit by remaining connected to God. John 15, Jesus says, you can do nothing apart from me. Right? Unless you're abiding in me, you're not going to bear any fruit. And so biblical self-control recognizes that it's not so much about uh, bringing our desires under our own control, doing what's in our power to try to control ourselves, but it's biblical self-control. It's submitting to Christ, Christ's control by the power of the Spirit. It's submitting our life, every area of our life to him. And so ask yourself, when you think about your life, when you think about your desire to grow in this area, where does God fit in? Where is he in this equation? Uh, Do you ask him for help? Do you turn to him in confession and repentance when you fall short in it? Or do you just get disappointed at yourself? Uh, We'll talk about this later, but does your desire to grow in this area have to do with seeking his glory? Or are you just seeking your own self-improvement, your own uh, self-betterment? I feel like it's just extra easy to regulate self-control to just this horizontal dimension. And so my point here is that we need to remember that first and foremost, this is vertical, right? This is done in relationship with God and the spirit is our strength and he is our hope for cultivating this fruit in our lives. And so what does this look like more specifically? Well, uh, this leads us to point number two which is not just the will, but also the heart. Not just the will, but also the heart. Uh, in scripture, we do see self-control that often talked about in relation to our thinking. Um, for example, in 1 Timothy 3, 2, or Titus 1, 8, uh, it uses the word sober-mindedness and kind of paired up with self-control uh, or with sober judgment, thinking with sober judgment. 
Um, even when it comes to self-control with others, Romans 12.3, it says that we should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Okay, so, so we see like the mind is involved, right? Right thinking is important. But I think something else that we understand from the rest of scripture is that as much as right thinking, as much as volition and our will is involved, that is also a matter of our hearts. Okay, self-control is a matter of the things that we desire and love and put first in our lives. We already saw that earlier in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, 15, didn't we? And when God saved us, it says that he changed us from living for ourselves to living for Christ. But apart from that, right, it says that our natural instinct is to turn inward and to serve our own desires, to live for ourselves. And so I think how this this, uh, truth plays out when it comes to self-control is that the areas where we struggle with this, whatever that might be for you, those areas, I think, reveal the things that we really love. Uh, If, like we said earlier, self-control is the ability to put first things first, then doesn't that sound similar to how we describe what idolatry is? Uh, If you've been here at Lighthouse, you know that we talk about this often. Idolatry is the failure to love God first. And so at the heart of self-control, it's not just disordered priorities, but it's disordered loves. See, we naturally make time and space for the things that we love and the things that we consider important. For example, why does it seem so much easier to get serious about exams or school or work than it is to get serious about spending time with God each day? And could that be revealing what are the things that are really important to us, the things that we really place value in? Um, Or I think this kind of explains the inconsistency of our lives sometimes when it comes to this. See, some, some of us, we can be known for living a very balanced or a very disciplined or very self-controlled life, at least in public, right? Like there's just certain things we do that make us come off that way. And yet in private, there are areas that really lack self-control. And that might be just because what, what's important to you happens to be more public, right? And, and it looks like you're good in this area when you're actually not. And so what I'm trying to say is, in other words, we, we really need to get to the heart. The areas that we we struggle with this shows us what's really important uh, in our hearts, what we really love. Uh, And so what do we do about this? I think it's easier said than done to just change the things that we love, right? That's not so simple. Uh, I think what scripture shows us is that we fight disordered loves by growing in our love for Christ. That when Christ is in the right place in our hearts, then everything else is put in order. Someone has once called it the expulsive power of a new affection. Right? You don't just try to repress certain affections. You uh, grow a greater and a better affection for Christ, and it expels all other lesser affections. And so we say this pretty often, but if you want to grow in your love for Jesus, then one, the first step that you need to take is you need to start by knowing him. Right? You need to know what he is like. Um, you need reasons to love him, so to speak. And we find those reasons in the Bible. Right? The Bible shows us that he is altogether lovely, that there are many reasons to love Christ. It shows us who he is. <clears throat> and scripture also tells us that as we grow in our love for him, then other things naturally happen. Right? It, uh, when we love him, we obey his commandments. When we love him, we love others as he loved us. Um, when we love him, then we, we understand that we are faithful stewards rather than owners of the resources that we have. We seek to please our master. 
And so uh, self-control is a matter of the heart. Uh, number three, <clears throat> not the end, but the means to an end. Not the mean, or not the end, but the means to an end. Um, or you can put it this way, that self-control is not the prize itself, but it's needed in the pursuit. Okay, it's not the prize itself, but it's needed in the pursuit. Um, turn to 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9, uh, we'll look at, we'll read verses 24 to 27. <clears throat> All right, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. Paul says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So maybe you've heard these verses before. I think they're some of the most well-known when it comes to self-control. Um, and here Paul gives us two different athletic metaphors. Right? He uses the illustration of running and then also boxing. And I'm sure we can all visualize uh, just the kind of training that he's talking about. Right? You think about like those uh, montage videos um, or like even Gatorade commercials, right? You see like athletes working out and their sweat is like neon. Um, but don't miss the other half of this too, okay? What is the purpose? What is the end goal of all of that? Well, Paul says it is to obtain the prize, right? It is to receive the wreath. And if you want to like talk about an even more immediate goal, Paul says it's so I don't disqualify myself from my ministry. And if you take all of this out, right? If you take this other half out, what does Paul say that that is? He says it's running aimlessly. It's like boxing as one beating the air. It's purposeless. Uh, as we've been going through the fruit of the spirit, we've been using Tim Keller's definitions um, a lot because they're very good. Um, but along with each of his, de each of his definitions, he actually gives a, uh, a counterfeit. He describes what is kind of like a fake um, fruit. And for the counterfeit version of self-control, he describes it in this way. He says, it is self-control rooted in pride, glories in and governed by the feeling of being in absolute control. Okay, I think that counterfeit version of self-control that Keller describes is what happens when self-control becomes the end rather than the means. Or I think that's what happens when we pursue self-control with the wrong end in mind. Right? As he says, we can pursue self-control with the false hope of gaining control over the things in our lives. Right? We can pursue it to make our own lives easier, um, to be more productive, or whatever it might be. Um, and, and realize this is what the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son did, isn't it? If you think about who the younger brother was, he was the epitome of reckless living, right? He, like, he squandered his father's inheritance. He gave himself to his own desires. He wasted everything. Well, if he was that, then the older brother was kind of the epitome of the other extreme, right? He was a self-controlled, sober-minded kind of guy, sober-minded kind of living. And yet at the end of the story, we see what his motivation was, right? He wanted his father's inheritance just like his younger brother did. It was motivated by the wrong thing. And so I hope you see how this relates to the heart that we just talked about in our previous point. Yeah, I like how um, 
one author from Desiring God put it, he said, elite athletes don't live disciplined lives because they think disciplined lives are virtuous. They aren't stoics. They're hedonists. They're, they are pleasure seeker, seekers. They live disciplined lives and endure all kinds of self-denial because they want the pleasure of the prize. Um, for, for the older brother, it was his father's inheritance, right? That's why he lived a disciplined life because he wanted that at the end of the day. And so for us, the things that we love are going to be that thing at the end of uh, the finish line, right? Those, those things at the end in sight. The joy that we believe is coming on the other side is going to be what motivates us toward self-control. And so what does this mean for us? Well, I think on one hand, it means that we need to realize that when we place our hope in the wrong goals, right? When we have disordered priorities, when we have disordered loves, that these things are going to eventually let us down. That if you're trying to discipline yourself, if you're trying to control yourself and you're doing all this work um, for something that, that is other than Christ, then you're, you're doing all of this for something that won't fulfill you. In fact, whatever you're working towards will end up controlling you. If you're seeking after self-control with the hope of somehow like controlling every detail of your life, at the end of all of that, you're only going to realize that you can't. And it's going to be extra frustrating. What was Paul's goal? Well, he tells us in Philippians 3, he says, One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That was his end in sight. And he says that everything else is rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Okay, so that's one thing. We have to make sure we are pursuing the right purpose. Otherwise, it's, it's all meaningless, right? We're going to be let down at the end. But on the other hand, I think knowing God actually injects even more significance into the everything things that we do. Um, knowing God gives us reason to pursue self-control even in the small things of our lives. For example, I want to grow in self-control when it comes to my studies or my finances or my time or my relationships, not because those things are the end in themselves, not just because I I want to seek my own benefit, but because those things matter to God, right? Because those things are a way that I can please him. Um, Colossians 3.23, it says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for men. And as we exercise self-control, that's one way that we apply that verse with every area of our life. So um, <clears throat> I think the, the big idea for, for this third point is when, we, when it comes to cultivating the fruit of self-control, we have to remember to ask why. Okay, we have to ask why. And this leads us to our final point. Uh, this, this is one answer to that why question. It's not self-mastery, but selfless love. Okay, and I'll say not just self-mastery, but selfless love. As we've gone through the fruit of the Spirit, we have talked about how each of these qualities is applied in relationships, right? Like, this isn't meant for you to just grow and cultivate in isolation. Um, You, you like, this plays out in community, in in our relationships. And this is true of self-control as well. Okay, community is where those moments for self-control really play out. Um, But also, we seek to grow in self-control in our own lives so that, we're ba- so that we are better able to love others well. Okay, So that we are better able to love others well. I like how one author defined it. 
He said, self-control is a sacrificial stewardship of the self for the sake of others. A sacrificial stewardship of the self for the sake of others. Um, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 9. So we looked at kind of what was the end of 1 Corinthians 9 earlier. But if you read actually what comes before that, the verses uh, in that chapter, Paul shows us this. If you read through, through those verses, <clears throat> there is this idea that Paul brings up over and over and over again. Uh, this word that he brings up over and over again. And it's the, he talks about his rights. Right? He talks about how he had certain rights to do certain things. Um, he talks about how he was free to do certain things. Um, <clears throat> for example, in verses 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians 9, he says that he had certain rights or he had even had certain authority as an apostle that he didn't use. Um, or in verses 3 to 12, he talks about how he had the right to be compensated for his labor for doing ministry. Like he, he had a right to, to take what people gave him um, and to be paid for what he did. But over and over again, even though he had all of these rights, all of these privileges, he was willing to give those up. Why does he do, why does he do that? Well, verse 12, he says, we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And then verse 19, he says, for though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. You see how self-control is playing out in relationship. And he's willing to give up these things for the sake of loving others as well. Um, elsewhere in Romans 14, we see a similar idea. In that passage, he is addressing a situation in which there are some believers in the church and they have differences in opinions regarding what's okay and what's not. Okay, so some people think it's like not okay to, to eat meat and some people think it's okay. Um, and, and Paul, in that passage, he speaks to those who are stronger in faith and it's actually okay to eat meat. It's permissible. Um, and those are who Paul considers stronger. Um, and he speaks to them and he says, okay, even if you're right, even if you are more mature in your understanding than your brother in terms of your conscience, your default position as the stronger brother, the first instinct you should have is not to exercise your rights, but is to defer in love to exercise self-control and to be willing to give up your freedom, to give up your rights, to give up what is like legitimately okay, to partake, uh, your freedom to partake in certain things and to give that up for the sake of love. That's what it says in Galatians 5.13. Paul says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. See, when this word freedom comes up in the Bible, I think it's a very different picture. It's a very different definition than what we might think of when we think of freedom. Freedom to us, especially in the nation in which we live, it is the ability to do whatever we want. It is the ability to pursue whatever we want. Freedom means that we have power and we have privileges and we have rights. We don't have to control um, certain things. We don't have to restrain ourselves. But what freedom looks like in, in the Bible is that we are free from our natural inclination to serve ourselves. We are free from uh, our self-centeredness. We are free from that tendency to seek our own desires. You're not enslaved to your impulses. You're not enslaved even to what is permissible, but you are able to discipline yourself. You're able to exercise self-control and to be flexible for the sake of the gospel. 
right? This thing that might be okay, it doesn't own you. So you're okay with giving it up so that you can love someone else better. That is freedom. And so do you see how self-control isn't something like restrictive? Self-control is what allows us to get to that place where we are free from our self-centeredness. We are free to love others well. And so that's really where we want to be headed when it comes to self-control. Okay, to, to be able to say, you, are, you and other people are more important. God is more important than what I think is important. And so I am willing to deny myself. I'm willing to defer for the sake of love. Um, I like how one author put it, and I think this should be our prayer. But it says, oh God, help us to be masters of ourselves that we may be servants of others. And I think that is a great prayer. Or, oh God, help us to be masters of ourselves that we may be servants of others. And so as we kind of wrap up, I just want to end by giving you a few quick practical applications to consider. Okay, and we'll go through this kind of rapid fire, but um, first one is this, to imitate more mature believers. To imitate more mature believers. Um, I mean, first of all, I want to challenge you guys to think about what are the things that you are impressed with when it comes to other people. And I think like we can get so caught up with achievements or accolades um, or, or things like that that we forget that scripture really values character, right? Scripture really holds up like the kind of person that you are above everything else. And I think especially when it comes to self-control, that is not going to be very flashy. That's not going to be like really stand out. It's not going to get a lot of attention because a self-controlled life is going to be a balanced life. It's going to be um, oftentimes a quiet life, right? It's not going to be like you're going to notice it right away. I'm sure we can all think of other believers who are better at this than we are, right? Other people who are more disciplined with their time, their money, their devotions, their prayer life, Um, maybe even like being punctual, they're better at that than you are. Um, And I would say like, ask them for advice, okay? Uh, I will guess that they they weren't always that way. And I will guess that they've struggled and they've grown and they've like taken practical steps that were helpful for them in cultivating this fruit. And so ask them about that. You know, ask them, what did you do? Right? What was hard? Um, or even give them permission um, to give honest feedback in your life. Right? Like when you, when you look at the way that I live, where are areas I need to grow? Where are areas that I, I really lack self-control? Um, and imitate their example. And I, I think this is where having other people outside of your current season of life is really valuable because they can help you. They can teach you certain things before you get there. Okay, so that's the first one. Just imitate more mature believers. Number two, um, take an inventory of your life and take radical measures. Take an inventory of of your life and take radical measures. Um, So if you, if you know that not being self-controlled with your time, for example, is a struggle for you, then take practical steps to figure out where your time goes. Take an inventory of your life. If self-control, as we said, is the ability to pursue the important over the urgent, then what are those things that are important? What are those things that are non-negotiable in your day or in your week or in your schedule? I mean, urgent things will always come up in any season of life. That's not going to stop once you graduate college. And so what are the non-negotiable building blocks that you want to make sure to structure your life around? And then once you figure that out, be willing to take radical measures. What are the specific triggers or temptations where you often fall short and what it, what might it look like to deal specifically with those things 
And as you think about all of this, as you come up with a plan, like realize this is going to be a lifelong exercise. Okay, Ephesians 4, 22 and 24, it talks about how we need to put off our old selves, which belongs to our former way of life, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God. Um, Romans 12 talks about how we renew our minds through the word of God. This is a lifelong exercise called sanctification. Um, but be strategic, right? Like take uh, practical steps, specific steps. Um, take inventory of your life. All right, number three. Uh, don't underestimate the value of habits. Don't underestimate the value of habits. Uh, I know that there's a lot of secular stuff that's been written about the power of habits. Um, but I, I, I do think that we do see that truth in scripture, right? In, in the Bible, we see that we are called to remember. We're called to commit ourselves to the same familiar rhythms and same familiar liturgy. Um, I, I learned this from this author named Drew Dyke. He wrote a book. Uh, one of the, I think one of the few Christian books on self-control is called the, Your Future Self Will Thank You. I recommend it to you guys. Uh, he's a really funny author, really helpful. Um, but he says that willpower is a limited and a finite resource. Okay, it's not infinite. And that's not like an individual by individual kind of thing. That's a human thing. Okay, to, to use an extreme example, uh, like even Jesus' own fully human will had its limits. Um, in the garden, you remember what he says? He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He realized there was like a struggle there, right? There are certain limits there. And I think practically speaking, I don't, think, I don't like need to convince you guys of this. I, like we all understand that our willpower is easily exhaustible. Uh, like I said earlier, just think about like your New Year's resolutions. Um, but here's how this kind of changes the way that we think about how do we cultivate self-control. Habits are valuable because, as, as Dyke says in his book, habits eat willpower for breakfast. Okay, when we have certain things that are already established in place in our life, it's hard. It's still hard to do those things, yeah, but we don't have to muster up sheer willpower every single morning because it's this thing that has already become established in our life, right? There's already this rhythm that we're going and we're following. <clears throat> And so if you think about the Christian life, there are lots of things that scripture calls us to, to repeat and to return to over and over and over again, right? Preaching the gospel to yourself, singing, hearing the word, gathering together, taking the Lord's Supper. And even though this, this seems repetitive and unspectacular sometimes, and like it doesn't do anything for you sometimes, these are all means that God uses to shape us over time, right? To, to develop habits of grace and to grow us in self-control. And then last one is this, when you fall short, confess, repent, and ask for God's help. Um, this one's short, but like I said earlier, we need God's grace, right? We need God's grace to cultivate the fruit of self-control in our lives, and we need God's grace when we fall short in it as well. That it is something that the Spirit in, produces in us as we submit to, him, submit to Him each day. And so just like everything else in the Christian life, when you fall short, Confess it to God, repent, ask for his help. Um, like we said earlier, self-control isn't a first step in working towards a relationship with God, but it's only possible in relationship with him. Um, just one more final encouragement to you guys, I think especially as college students. Annie Dillard once said this, that how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. How we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. 
I think for us, we can get so focused on the big and the dramatic moments that happen every so often. But in reality, who we are is shaped slowly each day by the choices that we make each day. And so don't underestimate the value of self-control, right? Along with all of the other fruit of the spirit that we've talked about and realize this is the kind of person that you are becoming. And thank God, right, that it's not ultimately left to, lo- to us alone. The fruit of the Spirit, uh, His Spirit is working in us and through us to cultivate all of these qualities in our lives. And so we trust in that. We right? submit to Him um, and we, we follow Him in obedience. Let's pray. <coughs> God, we thank you that <coughs> it doesn't depend on us. Thank you that the Spirit dwells in our hearts um, and that He is producing. Uh, this, this difficult fruit of self-control in our lives. And so we do pray for, for strength to grow in this area. Um, help us to uh, really have our eyes fixed on the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, like Paul, uh, Paul had his eyes fixed on. Help us to um, really be able to sacrificially steward ourselves um, for the sake of loving others and for the sake of living a life that's glorifying to you. And God, we thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.